open your Bible with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I don't think I need to convince you of the power of prayer. We're often in need of prayer and seek prayer from others. How often are the prayers of the saints precious to us in our time of need, in time of rejoicing? Charles Spurgeon, he remarked, said that no man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. You can tell a lot about a lot. Of, you can tell a lot about a person, but not with just what they say they want, but what they pray they want. That prayer reveals the true state of a person, because what we really pray for is what we truly want. It reveals what that person really is and what that person wants. Our prayers can oftentimes reveal our true desires because it tells us what we truly want. That's why they say in prayer that God is not oftentimes changing things, but changing us in prayer. And hear me, God does change things through our prayers. God works through our prayers. He executes his sovereign will through our prayers. But oftentimes what God is doing in prayer is changing us. Because as I approach his throne in humility, I want more of what I see. And that's him. And so I want his way, his purposes. God still does work through our prayers, so we should never cease praying. And our prayers are, prom- are, are powerful, but God does not promise that every one of our prayers would be answered with a yes. Sometimes he answers a prayer with a no, and sometimes he offers it with a wait. But not every single one of our prayers are answered with a yes. But in the passage before us this morning in John chapter 17, The unique element is that the Lord Jesus Christ is praying, and not one of his prayers go unanswered. Here's a prayer offered where not only is every single word cherished by the Father, but every petition is answered with a yes. Now, if you knew that Jesus was praying for you, what would that do for you? If I knew that the Lord was praying for me, I would want to know what he is praying for me. Because if that is true of prayer and everything that he says is answered with a yes and an amen in the courts of the heavenly of heavenlies, I would want to know what is he praying for me? Because that would reveal what he wants. And I want to know what he wants. And what God does in prayer is he reveals that. And if I were to know that the Lord is praying for me, I don't know about you, but I want to know what is he praying for me? Because all of his will will be accomplished, but I want to know what is he saying? What does he want for me? What should my desire be that's his desire that's not my desire right now? Well, you don't have to wander. You don't have to wonder because here it is. This is Christ's prayer for his people in this chapter, chapter 17. Christ's high priestly prayer. And as one person said of this chapter, it says that this prayer contains not one conditional sentence. Because every single thing that he is praying will be done. And he's praying largely for you, believer. He's praying for his people. 
This is as Philip Melanchthon, one of the contemporaries of Martin Luther, said, this is the most sublime, precious, dear words out of the Lord. This prayer comes at the end of the upper room discourse, shortly before the Lord's death. He's taken in his disciples, starting at chapter 13 in the book of John, and he's taking them in, and he's giving them these rich teachings that will benefit them all the way into their death. And he's given them teaching after teaching here in this upper room discourse. He's given them vital instructions, preparing them for his leaving. He's preparing them for his departure. And this simple yet infinitely profound prayer, although it's rich, it's profound, I think if we want to have a good grasp on it, it can be divided into three parts in chapter 17. Verses 1 through 5 is the Lord praying for himself. Verses 6 through 19 is the Lord praying for his disciples. And then verses 20 through 26 is the Lord praying for all believers. But this here consummates his prayer. That he ends this all teachings that he's been giving to his disciples now. Turning his eyes to heaven it says and now he's praying. Now what does the Lord pray? I want you to notice something. In this rich prayer, in this whole chapter... How does he begin this prayer? Because we're only going to look at the first five verses this morning, but I think one thing we should take note of as he begins this prayer is how does he begin it? How does he start it? What is the central theme of the prayer now in the beginning? And it really is centered on the glory of the Son. And I think that's interesting because as as Christ is praying here, the first and foremost thing on his mind is his own glory. As this chapter is designed to give rich edification for believers, we have to first realize that the first thing, the first words out of the Lord's mouth is all about his glory. It's about himself. Look how it starts in verse chapter one, in verse one. Father, the hour has come. Glorify yourself. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He says in verse 5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. He says it again. The two imperatives, the two commands in these five verses as he begins this prayer is all centered on one thing. Glorify your son. It's all about him. Before we go deeper in it, let's just read the first five verses and go from there. Jesus spoke these things and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, as he's praying here, these five verses here, centered on one thing, on the glory of the Son. And it's, it's, it's so interesting because especially in modern-day Christianity, when we think about God and Christianity and the walk, it's usually centered on what I get out of it. It's centered on us. It's centered on man. And, and that's because, if I'm being honest, A prevalent issue in the church in America is an anemic gospel. 
It's an anemic view of God. And we must understand as we just begin to embark upon this prayer that the first and foremost thing on God's mind is his glory. On his glory, his praise, his splendor. And so often we're looking about, woe is me, my problems, my issues, what I don't get. But what matters to God most is his glory. We have to see that. As this prayer is for us, but what is it first and foremost about? Himself. So what we need to do is to take a seat and be a spectator on this intimately divine prayer of glory and bow down. And we're going to do this by examining four aspects of the Son's glory that should deepen your love for him. As he ends this prayer in verse 26, he says, I've made your name known to them and will make it known. Why? So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So he even ends it there. Why? So that the love which you have in me will be in them and I in them. That he, he, he says here, we have his love in us. If you're in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith upon Christ, his love is in you. And so really what we should learn from this prayer is his, his love should be deepened. That his, his, the appreciation for his love should be strengthened and deepened and fortified as we first now see his glory and all that he has for us in himself. And so we're going to examine just four aspects of the son's glory that should deepen your love for him. That you should walk away seeing his glory in greater and brighter views that should cause you to bow down in humble submission and ultimately greater love for his son. So we will endeavor to soak in the glory of Christ this morning. If there is one thing we need each and every day is to be blinded, to be humbled, to be satisfied in the glory of Christ. Did you come here with issues this morning? Did you come here with pain? Did you come here with frustration? Did you come here with confusion? Did you come here weighed down? Can I just give you the ultimate antidote for uh, the solution for, for everything, for anything in your life? And that is the glory of Christ. I don't know if you know you need it, I know I need it. We all need it. But what we need this morning is to see the glory of Christ. And my prayer is that we see this glory in all that it is and that we would be changed having seen it. So let's first see the first aspect of this glory. And that is the son's glory in his passion. The son's glory in his passion. Verse 1. While we're drawn to the glory of the son, where is this glory going to first be displayed? Look what he just said in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. So what is he speaking of? The hour has come. He's speaking of the hour of his passion. In John's gospel, this is a reoccurring phrase he uses, the hour has come. Speaking of an hour. Now, as a spectator, we're wondering, like, what is this hour? What is he referring to? But just look. I want you to see with your own eyes. If you look at chapter 7. In Jesus' discourse, in verse 30, he says, well, in verse 28, he says, you, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am 
from him, and he sent me. He said this publicly now. But look what it says, verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, because they know what he was saying. And But what happened? Did they seize him? No. No man laid hand... No man laid, laid his hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not come. What hour is he speaking of? He's pointing ahead. Go over to the next chapter, chapter 8, verse 20. Before that, he's giving his teaching on Jesus himself being the light of the world. He says in verse 18, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. And then 19, they were saying, well, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me and you don't know my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And verse 20, in these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And guess what? No one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not come. And that's because Jesus says later in chapter 10 that no man takes my life. I lay it down freely. And so finally, when his hour did come, in chapter 12, he begins to just give us a hint of this hour. He says in verse 23 that the hour has come now for the Son of Man to be glorified. And now he's pointing ahead in the chapter over at the beginning of the, the upper room discourse. He says in verse 20, verse th- chapter 13, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing what? That his hour had come. And that he would depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so now he's referring to the hour being his departure. And so all the while when he's saying now in chapter 17, now the hour has come. Now it is here where now his passion would come to, come to be a display. His death and resurrection was at play here. Because when we talk about his passion, his death, it's never really divorced in Scripture from his resurrection and his ascension. So when he's saying now the hour has come, he's looking at now his his laying down of his life, his resurrection, and his ascension. All of this being now the consummation of this hour that he'd been pointing to in his ministry. And so finally now before his disciples, as he's praying now, Father, the hour now has come. And we normally think of God's glory because he says the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. And when we normally think of, of God's glory, of especially God's glory in Christ, I think we normally look at his incarnation or before his incarnation, that the glory he had before coming to the earth. We look at after his resurrection and all that is accurate. But here, the the emphasis here when he's saying glorify your son, the hour has come, this hour now is centered on his death. It's centered on the cross. And yes, the resurrection, the ascension is included, but here it's centered here that his suffering is right before him. Now it's come. Now they will seize him because he's laying his life down. So when he's saying here that his glory is on display, that glorify your son, yes, glory is one of his attributes or his perfections, we can say. But when he's speaking of this glory not to be displayed, he's talking about the manifestation of his glory. Glorify your son. Because when scripture uses the term of glory in God, it's not always referring to the attribute itself of God's glory, but rather the expression of this glory. 
So whenever you see, especially in the Old Testament, God's glory being displayed, it's not necessarily talking about his essential glory and in in his attributes, but the expression of that glory. For example, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 10, it, it talks about the glory of God being manifested in a cloud. You have Psalm 19, that the heavens declare what? The glory of God. You have in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 24, when it's speaking of God's glory being seen on the mountain while Moses was there. And then you even have Moses himself praying in Exodus 33, 18, Lord, show me your glory. He's speaking of this, the expression of this glory. And so now Jesus saying here is now glorify your son, manifest your glory, show your glory in me. He's praying for the manifestation of it, that the expression would be seen in the son's resurrection, his ascension, but even in his death. That I'm going to lay my life down. The son of God will be nailed to a cross and bleed out and die. And he's saying here, you're going to be glorified in that. God, glorify yourself in this. But this is not a, a selfish claim of glory because he doesn't end it there. Because what do you say right after that? Glorify your son. Why? So that the son may glorify you. Now let's contemplate here a little bit. How is the son glorified in his passion that will likewise bring glory to the father? He's praying here, glorify me that I would glorify you. Now, how is this glory going to happen in the son dying in his passion that will likewise bring glory to the father? How is that going to happen? I think we have to be reminded here of is the cross brings glory to the father. The cross exalts, exalts the glory of the Godhead. It's not the end. Because how do we see God's glory displayed in the cross? I mean, we can spend a whole sermon on this. But, but you see God's intolerance for sin, that he would be even willing to crush his own son. That the cross exalts God's glory because you see that he truly is a righteous God. That he is a righteous God that he would even crush his own son. And then as Isaiah says, he'd be pleased to crush him. Because it shows his intolerance of sin, that he hates it. But not only do you see that, but you also see the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin by upholding his justice. Because in crucifying the son, laying down his life, you see not only God's intolerance for sin, but you see God's justice in terms of punishing sin and being satisfied in that punishment. You see here, God is just. That God is glorified. He does not tolerate sin. That Genesis 3 is true. There is a curse. But guess what? There is a Messiah. God is just. It upholds his justice. It upholds his glory. But even more, you see the love of God in the cross. That in the cross of Christ, the love of God is displayed. And why is that? Because God is not constrained to redeem you from your sin. He does not have to save you. He does not have to save anyone. Just because God is love does not mean you receive that love. You got nothing to do with that attribute. But we receive God's love. And so God's glory is displayed is because he does not have to express his love in laying his life down in his son, but he does. And as he does that, what do we see? 
we see as Ephesians 1 would say, the praise of his glorious grace. Why would he love and pursue a sinner who has defiled him, rebelled against him, spat in his face, rejected him, even shamed him by claiming his name and still walking in hypocrisy? Like, why would a God love me? To demonstrate his grace, his glory. So in the cross of Christ, the son is glorified because you see the love of God on full display. You not only see that, but you see the self-revelation of his compassion. You see the self-revelation of his forgiveness. You see his mercy. You see his patience, his forbearance with man. You see God's faithfulness, that his promises are coming to fruition. God is a God who keeps his word. The cross of Christ glorifies the Son so that the Father is glorified and we see his glory on display clearly. So for Jesus to say, glorify the Son so that the, so that the Son may glorify you, we see the full expression of God's glory in the cross. This is perfectly expounded in Philippians chapter 2. In the passage we know of, of Christ in his humiliation coming to the earth, and after he says that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.9 says that for this reason, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, now what? To the glory of God the Father. It's in full display here that the cross of Christ exalts the Son so that the Father is glorified and the Godhead is glorified. So for him to see, we see, for him to say to glorify your Son, he is the only one who can rightly pray that because he is the only one worthy of that glory. So not only do we see the Son's glory in his passion, Further in this passage, the second aspect of God, the Son's glory is the Son's glory in his authority. The Son's glory in his authority. Because after he said this in verse 2, he says, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And you notice here that this verse begins with a small phrase here, even as, which indicates that he's comparing two thoughts. So what is he comparing? Well, he just said, glorify your son so that the son will glorify you. And now even as comparing, you gave him authority over all flesh so that all whom you have given him, he will give eternal life. What he's comparing here now is that the son's glory so that the father is glorified. And now just as you gave the son authority, why? So he can give eternal life. That he's comparing the two thoughts of his glory with the Father now, with now this authority that's given to him so he can give eternal life. And what's the realm of this authority he's been given? It says he's been given authority over all flesh, all mankind. Everyone is subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether they submit to it or not, 
every single living person who has breathed a breath, who has blood pumping through their veins, is subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. That all authority has been given to him in the Son. And so he says, you've given this authority over all flesh. And in this context, of this, in this verse here, the authority is not just a, a ruling authority, but he says it's an authority now to grant life. That the giving of eternal life is just one outworking of this glory he's talking about. That you glorify your son, that the father may glorify you, just as you've given authority to give eternal life. That the giving of eternal life is just one outworking of God's glory. And they were given all to the son, he said, all whom the father had given to him so that he would give them eternal life. Think about a police officer. A police officer can tell you what to do. He can stop you in your car. He can arrest you. He has authority over you, right? And why is that? Because he's been given that authority. But even in that illustration, it falls way short of the authority in view here. Because a police officer was not born with that authority. It was given to him. And so now he has that authority. But the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ has is not authority that's been bestowed upon him to indicate his inferiority with the Father. Rather, to the contrary. That the Son's authority only makes sense because of who he is. We're going to see how this is teased out a little bit in Scripture. But this bestowed authority does not imply inferiority, but rather a fulfillment of God's eternal decree. That the Son was a part of this eternal decree. Remember your Old Testament. Who was given dominion and authority in Daniel? The Son of Man. The Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7 after the, the images or the, uh, the pictures of the four beasts, you have now one coming after who is described as son of man, appearing before the ancient of days. And the whole point there is to show that this son of man who is appearing before the ancient of days, equal in essence with this ancient of days, has authority and dominion and power. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, right after the the vision of the four beasts, you see the picture of the Ancient of Days in verses 9 through 12. And then it says in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And what happened now? To this son of man, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every nation and every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That this son of man here is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom Why? So that all the peoples, all nations, men of every language and tribe and tongue might serve him. But just so you know that the Son of Man is eternal and essentially equal now with this Ancient of Days, you notice here it says the Son of Man is going to be served by all men. He's going to be served by him. Now don't overlook the significance of that because we think, yeah, to be served, that doesn't imply that he's going to be worshipped as deity. Like we serve one another, right? But he says here the Son of Man might be served by all men. Why is that important? 
Remember the context in, in the book of Daniel. Whenever you see the verb served, it's always referring to service in reference to God. Every single time in the book of Daniel. And then what you see sometimes is it's, it's maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Daniel saying, no, 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 Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to serve your God. We're going to serve the true and living God. Or you see here God extolling his own essence, his, his own glory, and he's saying, no, you will serve me. Or Daniel saying, no, I'm going to serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone. You always see that verb used in Daniel in the context of serving God. And now in chapter 7 in Daniel, it says this son of man is going to be served by who? Everyone. Why? Because he truly is God. And so for Jesus now to say, you have given me authority, he's saying this authority has been designated and decreed from all eternity that all flesh would serve me because I am the son of man. He's been given authority over all flesh. And why? As Colossians 1 says, because he is the the agent of creation. Through him, all things were created. He's the sustainer of creation. And so he comes on the scene in John chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus himself says that he gave me, he gave the son of man authority to execute a judgment. Why? Because he is the son of man. So Jesus aligns himself, identifies himself with this son of man who was able to stand before the ancient of days, who was able to stand before God and not die. Why? Because he's truly God. And so for Jesus to say this, it's a clear indication of his glory and his authority. That you have given this authority to the son. You gave him authority over all flesh. Why? So that they can give eternal life. And he says right after this, what is this eternal life in verse 3? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That because this is true now, you have given all authority to me. Why? What's the purpose of this authority? The purpose of this authority, he says now, to give eternal life. But notice here, he says, right after that, he says, or or before this, verse 3, Verse 2, excuse me, give authority over all flesh that to whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. That not to everyone is going to give eternal life, but he says all whom the Father has given him, he will give eternal life. So the authority that he's been given to give eternal life is decreed by the Father. The Son pays that price so that the Spirit now can apply it. He says in verse 3 that, They may know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's why in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that the apostle says that there is no salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Because it's in Christ our salvation is found. It's in him alone that God was pleased to have authority and to give authority in his son to not only have authority over all flesh, but to give eternal life to those whom the Father has elected. And there is no salvation in no one else. So he has authority over all flesh. But we looked at the extent of that authority, but now let's look at the extent of the eternal life he gives. Because as I mentioned here, he says that all whom you have given me, I will give eternal life. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no one comes to me unless what? 
unless the Father who has sent me draws me, draws them. That no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws them to Christ. So he's giving authority, he's giving eternal life, excuse me, to those whom the Father has given him. He does not give eternal life to all flesh. It's clear. It's his own words. He has authority over all flesh, but he does not give eternal eternal life to all flesh. It's to those whom have been given to him by the Father. And what does eternal life result in? This is what we looked at in verse 4 or verse 3, that this eternal life results in knowing God. He says that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That this eternal life results in not just knowing about God, it's not just knowing about Christ, but this knowledge he refers to is an intimate knowledge that they can know you, and then they can know me. He's saying here this knowledge refers to this intimate relationship that now in Christ you have with God. And this is pretty convicting, especially in our present culture, because there's many people who say they know Jesus, that they know God. But Jesus here is saying here, no, no, I came to give eternal life so they can have a personal relationship with us, that they can know the true God. They can know the Father, which means to know the Son, and you'll know the Spirit because it's three in one. That Jesus here is saying that this knowledge of knowing him is a personal, intimate knowledge of God. That just because someone says they know Christ does not mean they are known by Christ. That to know him is to know the true and living God. And he puts himself on the same plane with this true God, saying, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the only occasion when Jesus is recorded to have used the title Jesus Christ. But the whole point is saying here that you would know this Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I come from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. I'm of the same essence of the Father. That his authority, his glory is seen, and not only in his passion, but in his authority. That authority that extends over all peoples. And this authority that grants eternal life by the decree of the Father, that this is his glory. But thirdly, the third aspect is the Son's glory in his obedience. That everything the Son did while he was on earth was in accordance with the Father's will. Every single thing that that Christ did on earth was in accordance with the Father's will. John 4.34 said that uh, when Jesus was speaking, he, he said that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then when Jesus is speaking of laying his own life down, which is soon going to happen, he says that this commandment I received from my father. And when he talks to people about laying his life down, he says, this is the commandment I received from my father, that he's working in accordance with the father's will in John chapter 10, verse 18. That he is always submissive to the Father's will. And so when he says in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. How? Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He, the son here is referring to a work which is given to him by the Father in eternity past. He said that this work you have given to me to do. This was uh, an action done in the past that he's looking at. And he's now looking upon that work as completed. He says, now I've completed that work. 
And I think he has obviously his passion in mind here. He knows he's about to lay his life down and will be raised on the third day and ascended back. But he's already seen that in, in essence as done. That he will lay his life down. He says now confidently before the Father, I have completed all of your work that you have given me to do. And of course, this not only includes his death, but even now he's looking at his life that he lived on earth. You ever think about that Christ's life when he lived on earth? Everything he did, his obedience, his righteousness, the works of the miracles that he did, all of these things in fulfillment of the Father's will. That he was completely submissive to the Father in everything. That he lived the perfect life in all aspects. And it was never contrary to the Son's will because one God, one will. But what he did was he submitted to the Father's will and completed it. That he willingly submits to the Father. And so this emphasizes for us that the functional submission of the Son to the Father without minimizing or without attacking his co-equal status and his personhood with the Father. You see clearly in in these five verses, there's a functional submission of the Son to the Father. And what do I mean by that? Well, for one, you see the terms that he's using. He, he says, Father. He says, your son. This implies, implying here there's a functional submission where the son is submitting to the father. But as we'll see even later in verse 5, he is not saying he's not co-equal with his father. And he's not saying that he does not also have co-eternality with his father. That he, in this five verses here, is giving us a perfect display of the functional submission of the Son before the Father while also upholding his equal in essence with this Father. Then this five verses here, a rich theology of this Trinitarian language which upholds his submission while also upholding his equality with him. For one picture, think about it this way. For a husband and wife relationship in a marriage, as we know scripture calls, the husband is to lead. And as scripture says in Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your husbands. And we would never say that a wife is inferior, inferior in essence to her husband. But the functional subordination is there where the wife is called to lovingly place herself under the authority of a husband. It is a willing submission. And that's just a small picture of what Christ did in terms of willingly placing himself under the authority of the Father. And that he is submissive to the Father while still being equal in essence. That there's no attack on his personhood. That he is still truly man, truly God. John 6.38 says he, Christ explicitly states that he came not to do his own will, but what did he come to do? The will of the one who sent him. So remember here, Christ is not an unwilling participant in this plan of redemption. It's not he is forced to come to the earth. He willingly came according to the will of the Father. But this was a plan that has been decreed in eternity past. This work that he was given to do was always according to the predetermined plan of God. Always. One person put it this way is that he was acting strictly in accordance with the specific agreed-upon plan devised in the eternal counsels of the Trinity. Then in verse 1, when Jesus says that the hour has come, he's not surprised by this hour. He's not saying, oh, they're going to seize me, and they're really going to get me this time. 
Like he's not surprised that the hour has come. When he says, I've done all the work you've given me to do, he is saying here, this is something that has been devised and planned in eternity past. This is all according to God's plan. Because has not God decreed all things? God has decreed all things. I mean, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good. Nothing happens outside of God's decree. Nothing, whether good or bad. This does not make him the culprit. He he is not guilty or culpable for sin, but he still decrees and ordains everything that happens on this globe. Everything. He decrees everything. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 explains this clearly. Because speaking of our salvation, but it not only talks about God's sovereign decree in his election and his salvation, but even talks about God's sovereign decree over everything. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says that also we have obtained an inheritance, amen, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Yes, we've been predestined according to his purpose, but he says here, this same God who predestined us works everything according to the counsel of his will. He decrees everything. And Paul later says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he describes it as God's hidden wisdom. He says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages for our glory. That everything predestined according to his own wisdom. God's decree is exhaustive over everything. His sovereignty even extends to the plan of redemption, which we see here. But I want us to be, remi- to be reminded that the doctrine of God's eternal and universal decree and the doctrine of predestination aren't separate doctrines here. But really, the latter is a subset of the former. That because God decrees everything, even his decree in salvation is just a subset of his decree over everything. You cannot lose sight of this grand sovereignty of God. Now, Scripture says that everything works according to his will, to his purpose. So whether you call it God's eternal plan, his purpose, his hidden wisdom, and eternity past within the secret councils of the Trinity, which we were not privy to, we do not know, but within the Godhead there, there was a plan of redemption where he decreed to save whom he will save, but even he also says, I'm going to decree everything that happens here. Now, this is beyond our ability to grasp or understand. But we do know what Scripture is clear on is that he decrees everything, all things. Nothing is without sight of that. And because he does that now, Jesus says, I've, I've accomplished all the work you've given to me. I've completed it. It is finished. That God's working in salvation was not a plan B, or it wasn't a reactive plan. But rather, God proactively sought the redemption of sinners. And really now here, the disciples, they are eavesdropping in, hearing now the manifestation of the plans that were made even before the ground they were standing on was formed. They're hearing this secret prayer here before the Lord, before the Father. And they're hearing these plans that were made long before the earth was even formed. That Christ here is speaking of the secret counsels there within the Trinity of these plans that were made and established and can never be changed and now coming into fruition in time. Have you thought about your redemption through this lens before? Have you thought about God saving you through this lens? What do I mean by that? But when we think about our testimony, 
we, we give our testimony saying this one point of time now when I gave my life to Christ. And that is true. There was a point of time where you gave your life to Christ. But let's back up a little bit. Let's put the car in reverse. Why did you give your life to Christ? Christ says you gave your life to Christ because he already planned and redeemed your life in eternity past. If you lose sight of this, this gives us every reason to boast in my own confession. Let me boast in when I came to Christ. But no, 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 no. The the scripture says here that he loved you before you were formed. That in the womb, I knew you. Before that, that before even this world was formed, you were on God's mind. And he says, I will place my love upon you. I will show you my glory and I will draw you to myself. I will send the son and now the spirit will open your eyes to see that glory so that the plans that were established in eternity past will now come to fruition in time. Why? Because I sought you in eternity past. I grabbed you, you're mine. And this extols the glory of Christ, not us. That God gets the glory. And Christ here is saying, I have done this work and praise God he did this work because he came willingly to the cross and laid his life down. And what we see is the uplifting, the upholding of his glory in his obedience. That he was obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Lastly, the fourth, the fourth aspect, the son's glory with the father. The son's glory with the father. While this passage centers so richly on the glory of the son, it does not end there. It does not end there. Because now is the prayer for the accomplishment of redemption to come full circle. Because remember now, Jesus, he clearly and always is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. And for the Son now to pray, because look in verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now he says, he explains that, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He clearly implies his co-eternality with the Father. But now for him to pray now, glorify me, this does not indicate his inferiority again. It does not imply any finiteness to his personhood. But he says now, glorify me with the glory that I had with you. Now think about it. For for Jesus himself to pray to the Father, to be glorified together with the Father, for him to pray that, and if the Son who's praying this to the Father were not truly God, it really would be blasphemous. If he were to pray, glorify me, not only just glorify me, but now he's saying, glorify me with you. Now, if if Jesus were praying that and he truly were not God, that would be utter blasphemy. But he's praying this because he truly is God, that he is truly man, truly God. And now he says, glorify me, but now glorify me together with yourself. Now, look here at the phrasing of this. Because he says, glorify me with yourself, and he explains that, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
Now he says, the glory which I, I had with you, this is the imperfect tense, in other words, to imply that this is ongoing in the past. That glorify me with yourself, with this glory that I always had with you prior to. And he's saying, glorify me with you in that. This is a glory that he always had, and he not only always had it, but he says here, I always had it with you. That this glory that Christ had, he always had. That he was always God. He didn't just come into existence. He didn't just come and start being God. He wasn't just given authority and now he's God. Now you should worship him as Lord. But no, he has always had this glory. He has always had it with the Father. And now he's praying for the full expression of this glory now to return as he ascends to the Father to continue on with the glory that he has always had. That he had this glory before the world was existing. And this dynamic, the dynamic of the relationship of the Trinity now for us is just displayed even further. Because as I mentioned, you see the son speaking to his father. And yet the son is rightfully asserting his co-eternality and his co-equal status with the father. That with this, there is no hint of any essential inferiority. Glorify me with yourself. The functional submission in the Godhead that is displayed in verses 3 and 4 that we talked about is paired with the equality and unity in essence there. Yes, he is the father. The son submits to the father. And now he's asserting for us rightfully so his equality in essence. This is why John chapter 1, the very beginning of the book, which we know well, when the other gospels, Matthew and Luke, give the genealogy of Jesus, What does John do with his genealogy, so to speak, in John chapter 1? He talks about his genealogy, but really there, the beginning of Jesus' genealogy begins with God. Because his whole point is to say that he came from God. While Matthew and Luke are saying that he's truly man, and he descended according to the promises of God. But now John is saying here, he is truly God. And that's why he says, in the beginning was the word, in perfect tense again, And the word was, in perfect tense, with God, and the word was God. His whole point being here that this word, the logos, was there. He always was, wasing, and he was God. His whole point is that, yes, he has the same essence there. He's always has been, always will be. He truly is God. And now he's praying in John chapter 17. Now let me return and share the same glory that I always had for you for all eternity. So the reason he can rightfully ask to be glorified is because the glory rightfully belongs to him. That he is the one deserving of the glory. Is it clear yet that this is all about the glory of the Son? Again, we're just at the beginning of this priestly prayer here. And what does he begin? Where does he center it at? The glory of himself. He talks about his own glory. And take note here, the glory of Christ is not contingent upon man. God, by his own essence... His, he's independent, his aseity, that he needs nothing. God is self-sufficient. He needs no one else. 
that the glory within the Godhead is not contingent upon man because there's only one God worthy of the glory and the only one that can rightly exalt that glory is himself. And so even when we glorify God, we're glorifying God because he's redeemed us and sealed us so that we can now share with his glory and glorify him rightly so because he did that work in us. But God needs, God needs no one. That He glorifies himself in the Son. And the ever-humbling truth is that he glorifies himself in us. So don't lose this here. That this is huge on the glory of Christ. But the humbling reality, believer, is that God glorifies himself in you. In Romans chapter 8, the book that, uh, chapter 8, the chapter that talks about our security in Christ and how he saved us and that nothing can separate us from him. But Paul says something interesting in chapter 8 and verse 17. He first says in verse 16, after it says that we can cry out, Abba, Father. But he says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In verse 17, and if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we indeed suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, use the verb glorified, which looks the same in this passage as it does in John chapter 17. But what Paul does here in 817 in the book of Romans is he uses the word literally, we can say it's like soon um, to, to be glorified with. Soon glorify with. In other words, with, alongside. He, he prefaces it with the, the, the preposition with. So he's saying now glorify with. All right, there's this important distinction I want to draw out here for us. Because in John chapter 17, Jesus is now just saying glorify me. This is an active voice. Glorify me. But now in chapter 8 in the book of Romans, Paul is saying now we're now glorified with Christ. And instead of the active voice, Paul uses the passive voice. He says now we're children, we're heirs, so that now we can be glorified. We can be glorified with him. In other words, we're drawn up with him to heavenly heavenlies. Where Christ alone can say, no, glorify me because I am worthy of it in and of myself. And now he says in his salvation, he has now glorified us with him. This is a profound truth because now we share in his glory, he says. And the reason we share in his glory is because it's his rightfully so, and he bestows it upon us so that we can share with it with him and glorify him for all eternity. The glory of Christ is what we need to chew on and to relish because he condescended to allow you to now share in that glory with him. I hope this passage smacks you in the face with one thing. The glory of Christ. If there is any arena, as I said in the church, that is just anemic, it's clearly diagnosed here. It's a lack of glory, a lack of glory, a lack of glory. That if we truly glorify God and understand what that means, how much would that transform the Christian's life and the church? Because the side effects if we do not keep this first and foremost, is if Christ's glory is not on display, then what is on display? Self-glory. Self-glory. Our own sin. And that's why we always run to our own sin. This is why we always run to our own way. Because we lose sight of the glory of God. And what does the glory of God do? It stops you in the tracks. 
It's as if you are on your way to Tarsus and you are stopped in the middle of the road and blinded by the glory of Christ and now you turn the other way and follow this Christ because you beheld that glory. That's what God's glory does in Christ. It stops you, it blinds you, it transforms you and it enables you to walk after him. And so what we need, we're saying here the glory of Christ, we're not just talking about just some far ambiguous thought here. What I'm speaking of here is how does the glory of Christ change and transform your life today? What does it look like for us to feast upon this glory that is first and foremost in his own mind? If Christ is our life, if this is true, then how does this change your life? How much am I weighed down over just legitimate trials, legitimate trials of how hard they are versus the sufficient, glorious Christ? How am I satisfied in Christ's glory rather than vainglory and self-satisfying, self-gratifying sin? Look here. We're, if you're in Christ here, life is not easy. We have joys in the Christian life because we know Christ is our joy, and that change is not. But we can say the Christian life is not always happy. We don't always have happiness in the Christian life. God brings burdens. He brings trials. He brings suffering. But what does God want to do in all of that? He wants to amplify the glory of Christ in your life. And how does he do that except by removing and even causing pain in the things that you treasure more than his glory? And you do not understand how much you love yourself, how much you love your sin, how much you love the world until he removes it from you and you realize, I loved this all the time. And what he wants to do is to show the splendor, the excellence of his own son so that you turn from that and turn to the son and satisfy yourself in him so that he is glorified. That it's always about the glory of Christ in all things. And as he prays for the church after this, in, this in, the preceding, in the following verses here, he begins it here with the glory of himself. That's what we need at the forefront is his glory, the glory in Christ. Because we look upon our own self, we interpret life through our own interpretations, we interpret life through my own perspective, through my own desires, and really what I love most is my own benefit. I love my happiness, I love my way, I love my ease. And so when that's bothered, when that's, when that's taken from me, when it's tested, believer, hear this, God wants you to see Christ more. That Christ is sufficient for you in your grievous times. Christ is sufficient for you in your battle with sin. And by, can I say by implication, there are many here who maybe even know or who know Christ, but maybe do not even know Christ in the saving of their sins. And the problem here that Jesus is saying here is he came to manifest his glory here so that we can see in him is the light of life and grace and truth, the fullness of all of it. And so maybe if you are troubled, Wade, and you've never truly seen the glory of Christ as he has prescribed in his word. Turn your eyes now to this Christ, the Christ who exalted himself upon the cross, was buried and rose again. 
And he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. And if you are burdened, come to me, and this Christ will give you rest. That there is no glory, no satisfaction you can find outside of him. That your life was designed to give him glory. Now look here, we're all in the chopping block this morning. Because we need a fresh, blinding gaze into the glory of Christ so that we can take our eyes off vain things. We need to see him and all that he is and all that he's done so that we can cherish him more truly than we did the day before. We need to remind you, if this is God's priority, the glory of Christ, then if that's God's priority, that's your priority. This is your priority. That we don't want to just say we honor Christ. We don't want to just say I serve Christ. We don't want to just give lip service here. This glory is a drawing glory that does not guilt you to obedience. It frees you to obedience because you see him as he is and he draws you to himself and there is no other fountain you want to drink from than himself. So if you hear this as I just need to change my life, get things better, you've heard wrong last hour. Because really what we need to see is I need to see more truly this glory of this Christ who has authority over all flesh and will bring to judgment for everyone who has rejected him, but likewise will bring salvation to anyone who comes to him. You need to see this Christ in his glory and do not compromise in his greatness, in his majesty, in his splendor, and bow down to the glory of this Christ. We all need this. If you're not in Christ, come to Christ this morning. If you are in Christ, grow in Christ this morning so we can see his glory, the glory as a true and living God. Let's pray. Father, there is no other glory, nothing else that we want but you. For you alone, God, are God. And I pray, Father, that you would draw our eyes to see more of Christ this morning. That we would not only know of the glory of Christ, not only hear about it, but Lord, what we need is to behold it and to be drawn by it and to be changed by it this morning. And I pray that would be true in every single soul in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.